out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are. Hello and welcome to the C86 Show. This is David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This is going to be the second part of my interview that I did with Jason Faulkner. Um, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. To put it into some context, the American election had just happened, literally, I think the day before. So the results were coming in. There was a bit of anxiety and excitement, mostly anxiety. So um, that's when we did the recording. And as I said, the first part we did the week before, but um, Jason had to stop because... He had another appointment. So this is the second part. So we were talking about bands. Um, Yes, surprise. Surprise on that one. But um, yeah, I was talking about the world that was um, bands splitting up. And also, is it... Or would it be good to have band therapy when, a, when, when that sort of lineup were having issues, problems, and all the usual stuff that goes on um, with being in the creative process? This was Jason's response to that very interesting subject. Jason, it's over to you. Well, it's funny because uh, both both bands where I encountered the the most um, you know uh, d- um, dysfunction were uh, Jellyfish and the Greys, and um, and both bands had in common Jack Joseph Puig, the co-producer of both records. And Jack had this thing where when he, you know, when he saw that people weren't communicating and, you know, resentments were building, he would say, band meeting. And we would all go out to the tracking room and sit cross-legged in a circle. And he had a capo, a guitar capo, Right. And he, and his whole thing was, when you have the capo, you can talk. When you don't have the capo, you can't talk. Yes. And, and so it was a kind of a primitive uh, group therapy that, um, uh, you know, just by the nature of, of sitting down and attempting something like that, there, there generally is some sort of uh, improvement um, just by talking and, and getting some things off your chest. But the fact of the matter is that both of those situations, um, there were, there were, there were a couple of impossible people in, in both of those bands, uh, just kind of impossible to get along with, um, for me personally. And, and they might say that I was the impossible one. Right. Um, so we think, you know, because I've, I used to sort of back in the nineties when the new age movement was quite a big thing that probably still is, but I'm not in it, but I was probably a bit in it, you know, it was a hippie, but we used to have the talking stick. You used to do a lot of this group dynamic stuff with the talking right. stick. You'd sit around and you could only talk when you had this fucking talking stick. So, um, <laughs> so did you have moments where people were just like, wanting to sort of grab the capo from the, from whoever had been talking for far too long. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was, it was usually John Bryan that was talking a lot about how hurt he was by, uh, by the fact that uh, I was just really kind of on fire. I'm sorry, I'm getting a food delivery. So I'm just standing outside here. <laughs> hey, hey, hey man, right up here. Bro. Um, yeah. So I definitely, um, sorry, one second. Speaking of COVID. COVID, yeah. yes. <laughs> Thanks a lot, man. Appreciate it. All right. Um, so, yes, for sure. I mean, I remember one situation where uh, where John got the capo and he was like, um, you know, I'm just, I'm just so kind of uh, 
I'm just kind of crushed by the fact that Jason is like kind of taking control of this record. And, um, you know, I, uh, I, I wanted to play Maraca the other day, but I wasn't emotionally prepared to play the Maraca when, when we did a group percussion uh, take. And I, I, I think that I, I think I fell out of my chair when, when he said I wasn't emotionally prepared to play the Maraca. Cause see, cause I come from like, I, I just middle class, like I have to, you know, I have to work like nothing is, nothing's given to me. And, and we have, this studio situation where the studio is $2,000 a day. And I was just on like a, a hell bent uh, fast track to make, to make that record that I wanted to make. And um, so to me, like that just reeked of kind of uh, a kind of a brattiness. Mm. <laughs> but I just, I just felt like there's no time or place for that in, in, uh, in, in where I was or really just in general, if you're in the studio, I mean, it's so expensive. Yes. And we, and I am aware that we have to pay for it eventually. So it's like, just let's get it done. And then we can kind of like try and fix our stuff. But it was just, yeah, there was, <laughs> there were plenty of times where I think we all wanted to rip the cable from each other's hands. Uh, I think we only had one of, one of those sessions. Right. And then we tried some, uh, then we tried some drug therapy, uh, which was unsanctioned, uh, <laughs> unregulated, uh, but you know, like, uh, um, uh, psychedelics and, uh, John and I got really close, like in that, like in that frame of mind, we were like long lost brothers. It was the weirdest thing. It was like, as soon as we were out of our minds on something that's, you know, that's, um, intellectual, not, not like a party drug, No, but. Was it an and, was it sort of an LSD experience? Was it the the kind of? No, we were take we took. There's quite a few uh, mushroom trips, but there was also um, uh, I had mescaline, which is the uh, the button of peyote uh, condensed into a pill. So it was quite a spiritual. It was kind of done as a ceremonial spiritual experience. For sure, it was kind of a like a last ditch effort. I think from Jack to to get us to get along because he I think he saw the potential in that band. Yeah, yeah. And he, like he's just like these, these kids cannot get it together, and uh, so I remember showing up at the studio once. You had to drive into this back, you know, weird cave entrance, and there was all this stuff. Like there was Billy Preston's old white uh, Bentley that he had left because the at the time the studio owner was a drug dealer and studio owner, and as I guess they all kind of were in the seventies, and um, he had to leave that Bentley because of a cocaine debt. <laughs> so, so. Uh, so there's all this crazy stuff in this studio was was absolutely incredible. And um, I just remember walking in and Jack just goes, open your mouth. Right when I walk in, I'm like, and he goes, it threw, it threw a little something in my mouth. And, we, and then we just, we, then we, re, we would record like that. Did and you my, do, I, did, I was going to say, was did you do, was this kind of reg, a regular moment or just this was a one off? No, no, this happened probably 10 times in, in, in 30 days. Right. Good. Yeah, it kind of turned into that. And, and I, what I was going to say is that's one of my regrets about that record. I think that record sounds incredible and it, you know, it kind of is a thing and it's a, it's a real heavy, it's a, it's a challenging listen all at once because there's so much going on. It's very dense, but, but I do wish that there, cause I know what, what's recorded and I know like what we all played and it, it was more ramshackle than it sounds, but one of the problems was, and this might sound arrogant, it's not supposed to, is that we're all we're all such good players that even us out of our minds, 
it was still really tight. And and I wish and but it's also kind of mixed that way. It's very it's very very put together. And I kind of wish that it was more ramshackle. I, I remember thinking that when we were mixing, and I'm like, it's kind of missing like where's like the danger? Like where's the Where's the kind of weirdness in this record? Because there's definitely a lot of weirdness in in how it was performed. Yeah, because <laughs> I can remember when David Bowie was doing Boys Keep Swinging. I think he wanted it to feel much looser. So they all went, right, we're going to have to just all play each other's instruments. So they all had to sort of literally put their instruments down and go and play the next. So it's a lot more because it's like, actually, we're just too good, you know. And you look at that yeah. band and you had, like, remember the drummer called, was it Dennis Doug, Doug some Some amazing yeah, drummer. Yeah, Dennis, um, yeah, I know who you mean. But they were just all, so it's like, okay, you're going to play the bass instead of the drums, and you can play the drums instead of the bass. And, and it's like, oh, actually, that's the feel we wanted it, you know, because otherwise it would just sound like a very polished band. You know, they needed to just, you know, and when you listen to it, it is a little, lot more looser, isn't it? But it it evokes the quality of the lyric as well, and obviously that, that video that he played as well. So, yeah. So when you were, were doing the Psychedelics for your month, um, was it the case that you'd had the material and replayed it and knew what you were doing, did the psychedelics, and then spend the day trying to reproduce it? Yeah, pretty much everything for that record was was already written. Um, and l- like I touched on before, um, you know, our whole concept was whoever's song it is is, the, is king, mm-hmm. uh, meaning we can tell the other guys. I mean, if, if I want to tell Dan exactly the hi-hat pattern, uh, the, certainly the kick and snare pattern, but I mean, if I want to get really specific, uh, and the same applies with John and Buddy, um, and so uh, yeah, everything was was actually extremely worked out. But we would do quite a few takes, and of course, that was recorded on tape, uh, which is another reason why it sounds so so big. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was all it was all really worked out. So so some of the 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 trips and all that, and recording in that state of mind was definitely to try and get it to. Um, tap into something other than just our proficiency yes. you know we didn't, we didn't want to just play it perfect and all that stuff i mean if you listen to the song spooky which i, I still don't know why why i titled it that but <laughs> that's a that's a, a a trip that song that's a very strange very strange almost like a non-song but but um and that was definitely inspired by i mean the, to me the drug thing is like it's it, it's it's only enhancing what's already there yeah and in your mind, you know, if, if you're an experimental type of person, which I, I certainly am, um, I, uh, you know, that's just going to unleash some, some stuff or make it seem like, like you have all these options, but let's go this way instead of where you, your, 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 you know, your instinct might take you here usually, but let's go over here. Uh, but that road is already there anyway. Yes. Yeah, yes. But it's interesting because I did an interview with a a producer called Mark Saunders who'd worked with loads of people. But he said the thing when he came over to the America for America for his kind of another part of his kind of life was he he said a lot of the musicians were just actually just too good. It was like sometimes he said, could we just try this and this? And in the UK, it was like, oh, yeah, we'll have a go. Whereas in America, they go, no, that just doesn't work. You know, we can't do that. You know, it's like, well, let's just try it because at the moment... There's nothing that interesting going on, you know, but everybody was so, so professional and so capable. I think he was working with Marilyn Manson and this guy, one of the you know, guitarists who had all the Marilyn Manson look and he went blimey, suddenly picked up a guitar and played this amazing kind of music. And he said, oh, yeah, I was in the Katie Lang bang. And he was like, fuck, did you used to wear all that gear with, Katie? you know, but, you know, it's like, well, I could play anything. You know, I just happened to be with Marilyn Manson with the fantastic tattoos and the whole L.A. look. But, you know, there is, you know, I can do anything you want. You know, it's like. 
Okay, but in the UK, you know, you would either do Katie Lang or rock. You couldn't just go, oh, I'll just play that gig or, you know what I mean? I, I totally agree. And I actually agree with that, that kind of, that kind of, um, I, I don't, I, I get really frustrated with the, uh, with the American and, and maybe it's, it's, it's most prevalent in New York and LA where, you know, people are in like five different bands and it's like, well, who are you? Like, my thing is like, I mean, I've only played on a few other uh, records with other people. Like, and it's usually because they're friends um, or it's Paul McCartney. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I, I don't like even doing sessions because I feel like it's sort of, it's like, well, that's like what I do is what I do. And that's what I want to present to the world. I don't want to give what I do to something else just for a quick bit of cash. Yes. It doesn't, it's, it's a little bit more precious than that to me. Um, and, and in regards to, yeah, all these, these guys that can just like, yeah, go from playing whatever, uh, smooth jazz to uh to killing joke it's like that that doesn't really make sense to me it's, <laughs> it's like it's like how are you doing either with 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 a true heart you know yeah absolutely how, how, how can you be both things like you sort of can't and and you know there's this whole i mean it's even an infiltrated like how people listen to music because you know this the sort of um ipod Thing in the, the sort of invention of that, and then you know, where it's like, uh, and and you know, kids aren't necessarily like one thing anymore. Like, when I was a kid, it was like, if, when I remember when I first cut my hair short, and it was like a big deal because everybody at my age had like long, you know, bad, bad news bears hair, yes, and uh, and, uh everybody's like Led Zeppelin patches on their denim jacket and stuff, and I was I decided I, I was kind of into this punk thing and so I cut my hair short and I like had my you know I people wanted to kick my ass <laughs> because it, because it actually meant something yes you absolutely I mean? yeah no no I can I it was very tribal I remember you know you couldn't where I grew up you know it was a very kind of heavy rock scene and liking something from you know, like the two-tone label, like the beat or the specials, you know, you were a mod and you would be chased down the street for sort of sort of admitting that you liked, you know, Mirror in the Bathroom because it was like you had to like status quo, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, you know, and otherwise, you know, anything else was a bit gay, really. That was exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, you were just not, you know, if you weren't going to go going to work in the chicken factory, the jeans factory, some manual job on a farm, you know, you were just a bit, you know, you wanted to read a book, you know, you would just get beaten up. So there you go. Yeah. It, yeah. Was, it was quite brutal, you know, but very tribal, you know, so never met status quo were the fans, you know, they were they were sort of uh, you just never messed with the quo fan. So when you were sort of back going, you know, after your experience with the Grace, you sort of your your solo career started and you obviously did that feel quite a, a, a sort of a, a moment for you, sort of after being in such a lot of, you know, other bands, other, other dynamics, suddenly being the sort of the focus and also having to sort of have the baton and drive it? Absolutely. That was, that was when I, I feel like I sort of finally was achieving what I was put on this earth to do. Um, that's, that's certainly how it felt and, um, and, st and still kind of does. I mean, that was, I, I kind of... I kind of couldn't believe what I was getting away with because when I signed with Electra, I mean, I signed with Electra because of its roster from 
ages ago. I didn't sign with Electra because they had Keith Sweat. Yes. <laughs> I, I signed with Electra because they had Joni Mitchell and the Stooges and MC5 and blah, 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 blah. And, um, and love. Remember, remember my story of that for, for the first record I listened to? Yes. Um, and the 10,000 Maniacs, I think, were on Electra, weren't they? They, they might have been. I'm not sure. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, uh, so then I, and then, and then just the fact that they, I said, look, I'm playing every instrument on it and I'm producing it myself. And they're like, okay. And, um, I was like, really? Uh, okay. So then, uh, I also, I want, uh, 200,000, you know, <laughs> and they're like, okay. And, uh, I remember I'm, it was just such a, uh, an amazing time. Um, I remember walking down the street in Manhattan and, um, Seymour Stein, you know, sire, um, was, was, I had met him one time before at the New York Electro offices, like right when I signed and he's at an outdoor table. And he sees me walking down the street. He's like, Jason, come here. And I'm, I was just walking down. The, I was just bar hopping by myself in Manhattan. And uh, he's like, um, everybody, I want you to meet my new star. And I was just like, man, this is so crazy. Like, that's Seymour Stein. Um, yes. And he, I mean, he used to call me in the studio when I was mixing the first record just to chat, just talk about personal stuff. Talk, tell me his, tell me the problems with his life. It was, it was insane. Um and, uh, but I think I, I don't know if I mentioned, but when I signed with Electra, um, the, the week I started my record, my A&R guy got fired. So I was taken up by the head of, of A&R in New York, which is why I was always in New York. They would fly me to New York for like, you know, two days of meetings and then two days of just having fun and put me up in an ice hotel, put me up, picked up in a limo. It was just, it was insane. I was in, in my mid twenties, um, and doing this kind of like by yourself was like, was actually like my favorite part of it. Um, because I've always liked the idea that, you know, everything good and bad falls on my shoulders. Like I'll take it, I'll take the failure and I'll take the success. And I know that it's mine. Um, and I think that came, that kind of, you know, sort of stern autonomy came from the situations I had in the bands that were less than, less than um, smooth. Yes. You know? And look at, like, and I want all the responsibility. But and, and sort of at the time, you know, you, one can't think about it. But at, looking back, what what sort of person were you at this stage, having such a lot of attention and Seymour Stein sort of calling you over to his restaurant um, table? Yeah, I I was well, I was really um, very headstrong. I was very confident. Um, I was so confident, in fact, that I did things on that first solo record to intentionally make things a little bit harder to to grasp or I, I would do things musically um, where if something was too straight down the line as far as the the songwriting, I, I would inject something in it in the performance that would distract or cover up the how, 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 how easily palatable it, it might be which is, you know, an A and R person would would punch me in the face for doing that. You know, yes. <laughs> like, do not jar people out of their their listening experience if this sounds like a hit. Like, and I'm just like, no, no, I, ha I have to I have to make it interesting. And I guess what I was saying is the the arrogant part of me thought that people were going to follow that, and 
they they didn't really uh you know they they were they were um confused by some things that i that i did and still do um i think you know because i don't i can think of not really very few things more more boring than just a guy sitting playing a, a, a simple like a song with a guitar and and like just being so earnest and it's just like really boring to me like i, I need something like pulling at it Yes, absolutely. But it was kind of an interesting time because, you know, we'd had the grunge period and then there had been that sort of amazing moment in this country. And I suppose, I don't know what, what it was quite like in the USA, but, you know, we'd had Britpop. So we'd had that moment where from about 92, 93, we had Blur, Oasis, you had all those other bands like Pulp and Elastica and Sleeper. Yeah. And some, you know, and then you get all the sort of the bands who have jumped jumped on that bandwagon. So you realise the scene is starting to sort of fade when, you know, there's kind of like, oh dear, you know, the record companies are just buying anybody. So you, during that period, that was like 19, 1996, 97. I mean, I mean, obviously the UK at that stage now looking at it was so cool because we had, you know, cool Britannia, Britannia, and the new Labour period come in. So you know, the Conservatives eventually being beaten. So what do we, what was it like? For you in America at that stage, and and how were things starting to change? Well, I mean, I was I was definitely just kind of in my own bubble. I mean, I've never really felt like a part of any proper scene, um, you know, mu musically, and which has kind of afforded me a freedom to do whatever I want to do because I don't feel like I have anybody to answer to, and I don't feel like I have anybody looking at me going, "That's not really what you do, mate." Like, what are you doing? That's not what you do. Right. And, so I, I, that's why my first record has a song like Before My Heart Attacks, which sounds like a Cole Porter tune. And then it has Miracle Medicine, which sounds like a Buzzcocks tune, all filtered through me. I mean, that parameter, those parameters are so wide that they, they nobody would put those two things on the same record. I mean, you know what I mean? They're just completely incongruous. Um, but I felt like, well, this is all a reflection of who I am. And I... Look, I love bands like the Ramones that sound like one thing, and when you put a rec Ramones record on, you know what you're going to get. There's no surprise. Yes. I, I love those bands, but I'm not one of them. Like, I'm I'm almost coming at it from a... Like, each song is its own album, uh, and so, which is almost kind of like more of a producer mentality. Um, so it's like, if I, hear, if I start coming up with something, it's like, well, this, can, this needs to be over here. This is kind of a Tom Waits kind of thing and then this other thing is kind of a you know a whatever i mean just the extremes um but uh yeah i was kind of blissfully in my own little little bubble back then um you know like i said being being flown out to new york all the time and just kind of like living this this kind of l lonely but really exciting existence and i did think that there were things that i was doing on that record that were um that were very new i mean i like you know, you have, you have to remember, and it's probably the same over there. It might even be worse over there, but the the, the fallout from grunge um, dictated that you like grunge brought everything back down to you know like common man stuff, yeah. right? Punk, kind of a punk rock aesthetic. Um, however, like it, it just kind of took the fun out of everything. Like everything was so dour and um, and whiny and i was like i i identify i certainly liked nirvana and i certainly i love mud honey and i love some of that stuff but uh 
I didn't uh, relate to that. I, I wanted to do something extraordinary and kind of like far reaching and um, not be kind of pinned down by this, uh, this, this fad. Yes. Um, did you, you know, sort of, so, did, did you ever sort of feel, because I, you know, was obsessed with David Bowie and sort of looking at his work and realised he did an album a year and then he brought out Low at that point where you thought, God, people must have been confused. I mean, do you sort of look at those artists and think, God, that's, that's kind of, that's the sort of person that you want to be? Well, you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, the, 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 the invisible passenger that I've had with me my entire life is David Bowie. W- without a doubt. Um, that's, that's, that's a, a persona, a, a, an artist that I always have kind of in the back of my mind when I'm uh, making choices, musical choices. There's, a, there's kind of a Bowie co- co-producer. <laughs> yes. Well, I know, I know Brian, uh, Brian Eno said, you know, when he was doing Low, I think, but one of those albums, so look, it doesn't matter, no one's going to die, so let's just kind of experiment and see where this goes. And obviously, you look back and you thought, God, he did Diamond Dogs, he did Station to Station, Young Americans, probably not in that order, as well as the, you know, Ziggy and uh, Aladdin scene, and then brought out Low, and it's just like, Christ, that is, we all look back and go, oh yeah, that was a classic album, we all loved it. But then you you look at, you know, reviews by Charles Shah Murray, who just pans it in the NME, and, you know, he must go, oh God, did I really write that? You know, that blew my right. career. Right, right, right. And you realise that everyone would have just not got it. They would have gone, what the hell, side two? You know, it's just, uh, there's no yeah, songs side, here. Side two is, is a, yeah, is, is, a, is a revelation. I mean, it's definitely yeah, not pop music. Yes. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure that was. But again, see, the thing about that is, you know, it's like he'd ar- he was already such a like I grew up thinking David Bowie was kind of this underground artist. And like because that's how it felt, even though his songs were constantly on the FM radio, I still felt like beca- because of his diversity and what and, and his all of his characters and the just the records themselves, I always felt like, well, this guy, this guy is not mainstream. But but he but he was he was like one of the only like real underground artists that was also mainstream at the same time. I mean, the Diamond Dogs tour, he sold out the forum um, here, which is like 20,000 people. I mean, that's not a indie artist. No, (laughs) you know, and uh, and Diamond Dogs. Did did it have any I don't think it had any hits over here on it, like all of his hits from those records. um, Well, Dummy Dogs and Aladdin Sane, I feel like, didn't really yield any hits until later. O- over here, at least. Um, yeah, I think they just appeared on certain tracks, probably appeared on Best Of albums or Changes One, and but there was probably nothing obvious. You know, I don't know, the Gene Genie probably was on one of those oh, albums. Oh, yeah, yeah, Gene Genie was a, was a hit. Yeah, I'm not sure how, how big of a hit that was. No, here. I mean, it's, it's still not a major hit, but I, I sort of, I think it was quite interesting because him and Mark Bolan had this kind of amazing rivalry. But, but interestingly, Bowie was like already moving away and being very experimental, doing lots of things. And Mark still wanted to be screamed at by 14-year-old girls in, in the Jackie magazines, where Bowie right. was never going to be screamed at by 14-year-old girls from the Jackie magazine world. It was like he was already moving into a bit of an adult world. Yeah. Whereas and Mark our- Mark would just was almost like this Michael Jackson character of sort of like thinking, well, how am I going to 
he obviously didn't, you know, but he, he didn't sort of progress particularly, whereas Bowie was like, Christ, where are you going next? You know, you, we can't keep up with you. So it was kind of an interesting to look at those two together, that, that Bowie just was like two, so many ideas, like, you know, one album a year and producing, you know, Lou Reed, Iggy Pop, whereas Mark was just like wanting to still look young and beautiful, but he was and, like... And, and it wasn't working out for him towards the end there. I mean, my God. I have that Mark show. I have all those. Uh, <laughs> I have all that on VHS. Dear Lord, the Mark show. Yes, I know. It was. Um, it was like one of those little bit. You know, it was like, oh yes. It was a bit like Ricky Gervais. One of those Ricky Gervais comedies, isn't it? Where you just kind of see this guy who's, who's running a you know a men's club somewhere, and and he just he's hanging out. But yeah, he's a bit podgy, isn't he? At the end, for old boy. But yes, but then your your own solo when you sort of did your that that first solo album. Then bring in the, uh, the second one. Obviously, there had been, you know, like, how did you sort of pick yourself up, so to speak, to sort of think, right, album number two, that last one didn't sort of set the world on fire? Well, um, I actually, my manager and I, um, I, I had decided that I would, wanted to be dropped from Electra. So we flew out to New York to have a meeting with the, the label and, and um, sat around a huge oval table in a conference room. And we put forth our request to be dropped from the label and every single head of every department was in this meeting and they all said no 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 please let give us another chance we messed up you didn't we messed up jason you made an awesome record uh let us prove ourselves they literally begged me to stay on the label which again is extraordinary um because i had gone into debt and um and so uh, you know, and, and to be honest, I mean, that, that feels pretty good. Yes. That, that feels pretty good to be, to be desired that much, uh, artistically. So, you know, we left that meeting thinking, okay, well, they basically said, whatever you want, you can have. And, uh, so <clears throat> I said, you know, they, they said, you don't have to, you, you didn't do anything wrong. So you can produce it yourself again. You play all the instruments, whatever you want to do, just make another record with us, please. So I remember I bought um, OK Computer from a, an end cap at a Virgin Megastore yeah. here in LA. And I had it for like a couple of weeks and I didn't even open it. And, and then I had just, uh, a relationship of mine had just ended. Uh, so I was able to do what I, what I used to do when I was single, <laughs> which is wear some headphones and put on a, a CD and fall asleep that way. Because you can't really do that if you've got somebody in the bed with you. No. And you can't be like, sorry, I'm going to put on some headphones now. <laughs> <laughs> and good night to you. Uh, so I uh, I finally, I was like, oh, let me check out that Radiohead record. <clears throat> I don't even think I'd heard anything from it on the radio yet. It was, it was very new. Um, and um, I put that on and was riveted. And, and needless to say, didn't fall asleep at all. I was awakened by it and by the end of it i i was like who the hell engineered this and 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 mixed it and um i ripped open the booklet saw the name nigel godrich and i was like cool i've never heard of him he'll be cheap <laughs> that's exactly what i thought he'll be cheap and um and so i i got my manager to uh, to find him and that began the process of um, talking to Nigel while he was in London and, and um, 
you know, getting him on board to uh, to engineer and co-produce that record. And, um, you know, I was pretty flattered because I guess he was asking around and I guess he had asked Tom about it. And, and, and Tom said, oh, the unknown author. And uh, he said, yeah, that guy's good. And so I was like, he got, I got endorsed by, by Tom at, the, at that height, at that, at that time, which, which was flattering. And so, uh, you know, I just wanted to get somebody that was a really good engineer. And Nigel is a, is a stupendous engineer. So I brought him in for that. Um, and, uh, you know, again, I made a lot of choices on that record that, um, that deflected from, from the, from the song being a pure thing. that's easy to, easy to digest. I think I did that again. Uh, <laughs> and, did it run over, by the way? Did the budget did it run over budget wise, time wise? Oh, probably a little bit. Not not much. We we were. I'm I'm very efficient in the studio. I mean, I'm I'm like there to work. So um, it might have run over a little bit, but but not much. What happened was, um, I finished it in 2000. Um, let's see. I started it in in late 2007 in New Orleans and uh, finished it in L.A. Uh, beginning of 2008. And then I remember it was approaching the summer or something of 2008, and I called my manager. And I'm like, dude, what's going on? Like, I haven't even the, the, the artwork. I haven't heard back if they approve the artwork. And and he's like, your record's been delayed a year. And I was like, and that's devastating news. And I was like, what? And um, I basically fired him on the spot because I was just like, how how did you not think that was important to tell me? Like, how long have you known this? And um. So that's why it came out in 2009. Um, it was delayed a year. And I don't know why they did that. I never got a good, good explanation for that. But the funny thing is, is in my budget on that second record, I allocated about $10,000 to start to build a studio. And the label didn't know that. Um, I, just, I just sneaked uh, all this gear from the budget <laughs> and, and built the, the beginnings of what I have now. Um, back then, back in 90s, uh, 98. And, um, so yeah, that's the, that's a crazy story, isn't it? Yeah. And when you put, there was a track on it, eloquence, isn't there? Yes. Which is kind of, you know, the, the, one of the big numbers on it. Can you remember how that came together? Well, I recorded that, you know, I had really good demos of all that stuff. Um, and like, but all on a four track cassette yeah. machine. And, um, I, so I basically just kind of aped my demos, but, um, you know, having this fantastic, uh, engineer, uh, on board, um, made things just so amazing. Cause all, all of a sudden it was like, I can hear what, like what's coming back off the speakers is better than how it sounds when I'm playing in the room. And that's really rare. It's, it's usually like you play and it sounds so good in your headphones. And then you go into the control room and you listen back and you're like, not quite it's not quite the same and yes a lot of that is because you're hearing the sound of whatever you're playing also with your headphones you know what i mean there's all sorts of reasons for that but with nigel it was just like everything i record i would come down and it would just like be exploding through the speakers and it just was so inspiring um but uh yeah but that song um is just another kind of uh you know sort of fictitious uh, well, it's, you know, the, just kind of about a loss of words, loss of, uh, of, of, of 
being able to express yourself correctly <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and has a little bit of frustration at, uh, at other people's, uh, triumphs, you know, the, the, the kid playing Beethoven, uh, like, I don't need to hear about that. Cause I'm having trouble getting my thing out, you know, getting my, getting my, uh, my words t together. So. Yes, absolutely. I mean, obviously, building your studio must have been the best thing that ever happened from that sort of experience or getting the equipment, which is kind of your pension plan, really, isn't it? Pretty much. Yeah, yeah, exactly. At this point, I have quite a bit, quite a bit happening here. Um, yeah, that was just like uh, something I knew I needed to do because I, I had outgrown the four track. Um, I, I was getting so good at that four track machine um, where it was I was making 16 tracks on that thing. Because you just keep, you record something and then you play something, uh, an overdub after that, and you bounce that with it. And you have to get those levels just right because the new thing you're recording has a much stronger signal because it's a new thing. And the other thing is bouncing. And I would just do that over and over and over again and, and just make these kind of epic. I mean, if you listen to the, if you listen to the four track of She Goes to Bed, Oof. which is on a collection called, um, uh, what is that? It's called uh, Necessity of the Four Track Years. It's on Spin Art Records. Goes to bed. <laughs> Can't make a note. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that four track is insane. Uh, the four track where she goes to bed. It's like beautifully sloppy, and but it's a huge four track. It's got like, you know, it's got 16 tracks on it. Yes. But I, so anyway, I, I knew that I needed to, to graduate from that. And so I, uh, so I, uh, Jesus Christ, sorry, I'm, I'm on a text thread with all the bet guys. They're, we're we're going to get together later. So I just keep getting a, a text after text after text. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, yeah, that was, um, that was something I knew I needed to do. And, um, man, I, yeah, I was so excited when I, when I got that. I mean, I got a box of, uh, API mic briefs, which now are worth the, the entire 10,000 I spent just the pre's absolutely uh, so yeah that was exactly hey i've got to get my power cord can you give me one second yeah yeah sure i think my phone is just about to die yeah give me give me one second Is it going to mess up your visual if I flip myself, if I flip the side like this? No, that's fine. That's fine. Oh, no, that's actually quite even, even larger. Um, yeah, so, but, okay, so the big thing is, after that experience, your, your output sort of isn't quite so prolific as it had been. So how, how were you coping emotionally from this next kind of decade? Because obviously, I mean, it's only, a de you know, time is whatever, we've made it. So how did you sort of think, right, this is 2000 now, we're going to move on, but kind of output-wise, things slowed down, didn't they? Yeah, they sure did. I mean, I, I, was, I, was, greatly, um, I was greatly affected by the, the sort of uh, lack of, of success uh, of both of those records. Um, I, 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 I hate to say it, but I, I feel like I kind of gave up um, I just got so so disenchanted with uh, with the business, but also just with people. I got I got kind of uh, I got kind of dark, um, and um, 
you know, I never meant to uh, to sort of bail on my trajectory as a solo artist. I never meant to do that. I, I actually regret it profoundly. Um, but I um, I hadn't made any money, and all of a sudden I was offered the the air thing. You know, and yes. uh, those, I met those guys in L.A. and they just instantly took a shine to me and they were like, would you be in the band? And I was like, um, and then they told me how much money I was going to make. And also they were just such sweethearts that I just was like, yeah, I'll do this for a little while. I also, I also really enjoyed the idea that that was something that my fans, that would be one of the least things that they would expect is that all of a sudden I would be in this kind of like down tempo French electronic band. I know <laughs> that is quite, that is quite a U-turn. Well, not a U-turn, but it's quite a going off road, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly, and I and I and I loved that idea, like because I do like to kind of surprise, you know. I, I like I like the I don't like to to be you know uh, where, where you know exactly what all my moves are going to be. So um, I enjoyed that, and that was something I was only supposed to do for like um, six months or something, and it turned into three years. And um, I'll never forget. I got one of the, the best. I was actually looking for it the other day because because I'm so flattered by it because I'm such a fan of Nick Kent. Yes, um, dear old Nick. <laughs> Nick Kent wrote this wrote this review of the Air live show in Paris, and he said he, he panned the band, and then he said, "But the guy in the middle playing the bass and singing is a freaking superstar. This guy was. I mean, he wrote this whole." second half of this article this review about me and i never met him and i don't and i don't have a copy of that it, i think it was in um a mojo right i don't know if did, did he write for mojo probably there was a you know his post nne days he was probably a bit of a writer for hire at that stage so he probably he he has got it he did crop up a lot and um i know i've got a couple of his books he's kind of compiled some of his kind of stuff together but you know it's one of those yeah. many things that especially as you get older i wish more people would archive their work really especially sort of from those weekly or monthly music magazines and papers and stuff like that because you realize you know when we used to get the enemy each week i i did try to keep them but eventually you move house a few times and okay eventually you just go out oh, this is going in the recycling because i can't physically move boxes of NMEs anymore but you look right. back and just wish they were somehow more accessible because you think there's the photographers there was people like Kevin Cummins and his work which was like as you know I've interviewed him quite a few times recently because he's he's brought out a lot of books and you just realize how how disposable it was and but how lucky we were to have weekly papers you know so that was quite extraordinary exactly yeah so that was um sorry my computer just fell down. yes so then yes your dark period this isn't good is it did you no. it was yeah it was uh I, well I, I i just thrust myself into that band and they they treated me so well they they, they actually treated me like i was you know a, a front man of that band um so in a way, it it didn't feel like I had just kind of like lost the plot and just decided to be a, a hired gun because th that that band certainly didn't operate like, you know, using hired guns. It was more like use like more like personalities. Yes. And, you know, so it so it didn't feel as shitty as it could have. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, um, yeah, so that yeah that that but that was quite a detour. I mean, it, it, like I said, it ended up being three years, and then after that, um, 
I cobbled together some new recordings I had started making because I finally, I actually, uh, I bit the bullet and got a computer system for the first time in uh, about 2002. And that's when I recorded like that EP, all the songs that are on that EP, which is called Bliss Descending. Um, right. Those are all from that. 2002 2003 period and i was really really like reinvigorated by by that new stuff i was writing and i just couldn't but i didn't i didn't ever like go and bang down the doors of the labels and all that stuff and i just kind of like i think i got just kind of like shell-shocked by the electric experience yes but then after your ep you brought out um I'm okay, you're okay. So you did, so definitely, you know, I wouldn't say it was your Tim Machine period because obviously Air was probably much better than Tim Machine. But but it obviously helped to sort of give you a little bit more confidence and enthusiasm. Yeah, it's, it, it was just the enthusiasm. Yeah, the, the confidence was, it's a funny thing. It, it wasn't kind of that I lost confidence in what I do. I just sort of lost faith in people, like understanding what I did or supporting supporting what I did. I just felt kind of like, it's, it's, I guess it's a little bit bratty, but I just felt a little bit like, like you didn't get it. So like, whatever, I'm still doing it. Yes. I'm still doing it. I'm still here recording and writing songs because I can't do it. I can't help it. Um, but I'm just going to like keep them to myself, I guess. You know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, so, but yeah, when I, when I'm okay, you're okay. The, the only reason that record came out was because there's a Japanese label and a guy just like cold emailed me and said, Hey, I, we're huge fans of yours. I run this label that's, uh, that's owned by this big band there, um, in Japan. And we're like massive fans of yours. And do you have a, do you have new music ready for, to, to release an LP? And I said, well, I have a lot of songs. Yeah. And they offered me some money. And, you know, so I was like, okay, so I'm going to cobble together this record. And um, that's what that's what that is. That was just all the stuff I was working on. Like I said, I've all, I'm always working. Yes. But I just hadn't released anything in a while. And did you, so, and did it feel when you sort of, especially looking back at that period, do you sort of feel that somehow having a mentor or some sort of person to say, look, you've got a deadline, we've got this to kind of release, so you need to sort of, step up a bit more now you've got to start running a bit more did does that sort of give you that kind of um direction absolutely i i benefit greatly from a deadline um i benefit greatly from somebody saying hey there's people waiting for this what you have to you have to give it to us by this day like that actually is very effective for me otherwise i will just tinker away um so that's what happened with that. Yes. Um, they, you know, they, they, there was a release date. And so I'm like, all right, I'm going to put this thing together. And then I put it together and I was extremely happy with that record. But again, it never had an, it never had an American or UK release. Um, it was only the Japanese release. I know. And, uh, and that was just because I didn't go and bang down any doors. I mean, I probably could have found a label, but I, I guess I was not inspired to do that. So, and so and so, bring it up to the current time and, and and what's kind of happening now. So, where where are you sort of heading next? Because you must. Well, I have a brand new record that's that's almost done. 
Right. Yes, I, I'm, I've been in here since May. Um, and before that, I was in my other house. I still had the same setup in my other house. <clears throat> and I've been recording. I have about 15 things that are actually pretty much done. Um, so I've, there's a couple new ideas that I want to throw into that bag. And then I'm going to start trying to figure out the best way to put it out. And to be honest, these days, I don't know what that is. Um, it might just be selling directly to my fans. Um, and, but, you know, I'm making some really nice LPs and, um, you know, some specialty things. And yeah, not yeah. just like, not and, just the stream, streaming thing. And have you found, with the passing of time, plus also this incredibly bizarre year, the community that is the, the sort of musical world, has that sort of come together a bit more to support each other? instead of any form of rivalry, which often happens when you're younger and you're in that kind of zeit musical zeitgeist moment. But now, as we all get older, you just think, actually, I can't be bothered with that anymore. I just wondered how it was for you. Oh, oh wait, hold, hold that thought. My gardener, I can't hear. Oh, your gardener. Go gardener. Jesus, really kind of I like it. <laughs> That's okay. Can you repeat that last question? Oh, yeah. I just was wondering how, because, you know, there's, there's several things that happen. Because I've been doing this show for four years, and mostly it's from bands in the 80s, sometimes into the 90s. And they're, um, and obviously at the time, you know, you say, oh, what it was like being part of the scene? And say, they all go, oh, we weren't really part of the scene. You know, but obviously as a fan, you think everyone slightly lives together or are, are the same, you know, live on the same street, etc. But they obviously, you realise they didn't, they never spoke. But then over the decades, you know, they have that five years of music, which in this country often like... You know, they get together, they get that single, John Peel gave it a play, they get a John Peel session, that first album, things going well, the second album, things aren't going so well. You know, there's a the lack of money, there's the fact that they start to hate each other. And in the UK, if anybody ever tours America, they always come back and they break up because they always go, oh, America just broke us. It was just, just got, you know, just destroyed <laughs> us. So basically 90% yeah. of UK bands never quite survived the American experience. But then, you know, they get a job or they sort of work in the music industry, but often just get a job. They come back and they start playing the slightly nostalgic, nostalgia circuit, as well as, you know, their new musical projects and stuff. But they start bumping into each other and, and you know, from other bands, not with the original bands, because sometimes they still hate each other. I just wondered if if you have found yourself having a little bit more community with other musicians from that period. Uh, I, I have to say it, not really, because I never really did. Um, <laughs> I, I was always kind of an island, so I, you know, like, I, I didn't really, I, I feel like uh, I was never really embraced by much of a scene here. Um, I think people just saw me as this kind of kind of anomaly. I mean, I certainly talk to a lot of, well, I have a lot of friends that are musicians and some some fairly notable, um, but and and the the community that I have with those people is fantastic and certainly there's a lot of support for each other during this and just talking about how we're how we're going to survive this um, and I mean the conversation before all this was how we're going to survive this but this was the music business collapsing <laughs> <laughs> you know and the fact that there's very few ways to actually make money um in in the music business um or or making music um, yes but now yeah this has certainly you know brought but i think a lot of people together um just because it's kind of all we have now is this kind of conjecture about how we're gonna 
how we're gonna survive. Um, but as far as like a scene, I, there's 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 not really a scene here. I mean, there's probably a younger scene, but it's just not it's not something I'm really involved in. Right. Uh, you know, yes. I uh, I've reached out to quite a few. You know, I've had co great conversations with every everybody from Kasim Sultan from Utopia, you know, Todd Rundgren, um, and uh, you know, my friend David Holmes, who's the the producer, the the Irish producer, um, and Bobby Gillespie, and um, you know, I, I definitely talk to a, a, a bunch of people that, uh, and and then our Stevie Moore, which is one of my favorite projects I've ever done, um, which is that that record that we did together called Make It Be. Right. Um, so I talk to him all the time. And he's just, uh, you know, kind of in Nashville. Uh, he, he's also a uh, a real kind of island unto himself person. Um, you know, there, to me, there's to me, there's nobody like our Stevie Moore. Um, if you go back and listen to his first, you know, five records, they're just stupendous. Um, and do, are you familiar with him? No, I'm not. I'm oh not. My, oh, oh, I'm, you, you you have a tr you have a treat in store. Um, just just put on your most independent um almost like public access do you know, did you guys have public access over there no i don't so that 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 public access was a was a there were there were there was a channel on tv um that was usually channel three and oh, it right. would be it would be something where there there's there's studios in town and just anybody, anybody who wanted to could have their own show, <laughs> which is incredible, uh, which basically yielded this ultra bizarro kind of counterculture of people doing weird shows. You know, there was a show with a guy that just interviewed strippers. There was a show where... Uh, there was a show hosted by this guy Peter Ivers that was called New Wave Theater. That was that was one of the most uh, informing informing things I experienced as a young teen because he would have everybody on there from from Fear uh, to all these weird punk bands and then all these even weirder like um, art New Wave bands. And it was hosted by this super strange guy who also made amazing records. Peter Ivers. Peter uh, Ivers. Well, I'm just have to check all this out. Actually, Peter oh, Ivers. P P Peter Ivers. The record is the best record is called Terminal Love. It's got him on the cover with like an arrow going through his heart. Terminal Love. Gonna have to that up. record is phenomenal, in my in my opinion. I mean, it's not definitely not everybody's cup of tea. He's you know, but <laughs> I I just love it. But this guy, R. Stevie Moore, is um is is just an absolute legend. I mean, his first record is like 1977. Um, I can yes, I've just seen he has got quite a CV, hasn't he? A Nashville dude. So how did you manage to meet him and and sort of become part of his kind of world? Well, we met we met through uh, uh, we met because I, I've I've worked quite a bit with this chap uh, Ariel Pink. Are you familiar with him? No, but I can see there's a picture of Ariel Pink on his page. Blimey. Okay, uh, so so do yourself a favor and listen to the Ariel Pink. Uh, song, I think it's called Only in My Dreams. Yeah. And also K uh, Kinski Assassins. That that record that has K Kinski Assassins as the first track, listen to that whole first side and I think your mind will be blown. It, this guy is absurdly uh, unique. Um, and great songs. But anyway, uh, so Ariel and I met a long time ago and um, 
we, we discovered that our, we had a mutual love of this weirdo named R. Stevie Moore. And, um, so our, our Stevie, Stevie and I started communicating like back in the, in the, uh, MySpace days, um, just kind of a pen pal thing. Yes, absolutely. And, yeah. And then, uh, and then we just decided. So then we made a, a, a seven inch with the two of them, and I was producing. Uh, called um, it's a kind of a kind of a tricky title, but it's called Ku Klux Glam. I saw yes, I saw the. Uh, I did see that. I thought, hmm. Yeah, that, that's an RCB Moore title for sure. He's he's definitely an instigator. He's a he's a thought instigator. Um, but uh, we we did that, and then Stevie and I, when when they were making that at my studio, Stevie and I were looking at each other, going, "We have to make one ourselves. We have to make it right." So. I swear, I don't know. I mean, it's again, it's a, it's a, some, some people love him and his voice because he's, he's, his voice is, um, he's not like a rock singer. He, he's, he's, it's very, very bedroom. It's a very bedroom, bedroom recording kind of guy, you know. Um, but if you listen to the record that we made together called Make It Be, I, I swear, I mean, the first song's called I Hate People, and it's just wonderfully, wonderfully like antagonistic. And uh, again, something that, you know, it's another thing where maybe some people would be confused that I do something like that, but they shouldn't be. So do you sometimes feel, because you've got so many ideas that you've got all the time and and keeping it focused and edited, you know, that, that, you know, you miss that kind of duo, like the, you know, the Morrissey, Marr, you know, Paul McCartney, John Lennon, you know, the, the sort of um, and all the you know all the cliches with with you know Jaguar and Richards, do you sort of feel that sometimes you needed another you know the yin yang experience to sort of balance it out? Otherwise, you just go too far on one one trip. That kind of is like that's brilliant, but it's almost too brilliant. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a good point. I, I I've just I've kind of never had that, so I don't really know what I'm missing. I mean, I know th- theoretically what I'm missing because I love all those examples that you just presented, but. Um, you know, like I have had some good experiences as a duo. Um, that one I was just mentioning was was a fantastic one. But I mean, even going back to the '90s, where I worked with Brendan Benson, um, and uh, basically co-wrote and produced and gave a, a, a personality to those first two records that would wouldn't have otherwise been there. Um, you know, that was a good. That was a good working relationship, and until it wasn't, and, <laughs> <laughs> and the main reason that it that it went south was because I got fired. Um, because uh, not by him, but by the label, and um, uh, when I was mixing the first record, and then you know they said it's just it just doesn't sound the way we want it to sound, and I'm like, and what I was trying to do with that first Brendan Benson record was mer- was something that seemed totally outlandish in 1995 which was to marry the Beach Boys and the Stooges. And I, because the, those are so, such wide poles between those things, but they're not, they're not unfathomable to marry in my mind. I, yeah, know, yeah. I know how to do it. And that's what I was kind of trying to do with him. And he was all, all on board. And then, and then uh, you know, he, he just had a kind of a, a, a sheepish personality. And whenever anybody would, question what we were doing he'd be like oh yeah yeah i don't know when when like all day before that he was like this is the best thing i've ever heard in my life and then as soon as somebody comes into the room and goes "Hmm, i don't know about that he's like yeah 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 me neither me neither jay and i'd be like 
I can't work with somebody like that. You you have to have a strong, you know, sort of fortitude. Yes. And, and, belief, and belief in what you're doing. And, and you, you know, you can't be so, so uh, malleable. Um, Did you so fall? That's kind of why that. I was going to say, I mean, at that point, you know, in in the sort of 90s, you know, especially you had, you know, we were kind of always excited in the UK, you know, anything from America often gets, you know, like, wow, that's going to instantly kind of get us excited. I mean, there were people like Beck coming along who had this, again, a kind of very quirky but brilliant side to him as well. So did you sort of feel like, God, when you look at, you know, Beck and people like that as well, did you sort of feel that that could have been kind of what you were also doing was he an inspiration um yeah i mean I, I i appreciated beck as soon as i heard loser you know i just thought this was very cool it was i like i like that it was um you know i like kind of um the ramshackle like kind of uh, jo- jokey hip-hop aspect of it um i i it wasn't like right up my alley musically of course um i just kind of always felt like people were going to kind of finally come to come around to my way of my vision instead of me tailoring my vision to meet them yeah and um so that's kind of a stubbornness that's a that's a thread in my life um but it's also it's also like um it's also a result of having a lot of um you know confidence in what i do and, and thinking that it is unique and um you know I don't, I don't, I don't want to be like a rock star. I just want to be able to like buy a house, you know, like, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to pay rent until I die. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, um, so it's just like the little things, but, uh, but yeah, certainly when I heard back, I was, I was, I was like, this guy's very interesting. And then the first time I, and then I met him like kind of right around that, that point, like maybe second record of his, I met him and we became kind of peripheral friends. And then, he would invite me to his parties and stuff, and and he would always like be like, "Man, we got to do something together." And I always thought he meant like something where we're we're a team doing something, like his vision, my vision, meeting and making some music. But what he meant was, "You should be in my band." <laughs> <laughs> he was just trying to snatch me to, to be in his band, and um, which oddly enough ended up happening uh, many many years later. But um, but yeah. Uh, and the first time I worked with him was Sea Change. And I mean, that record blew my mind because I didn't know that, you know, underneath this kind of needle dropping, you know, collage artist was this crazy good songwriter. Um, and in, in the kind of real traditional sense of the, of the word. Um, so, yeah, I think that record blew a lot of people's minds in that regard. Kind of took him off course. Of, of the career that he was going down. Yeah. But I think, I think it only enriched it. I mean, you know, that, that aspect of, of what he does is, is my favorite thing that he does. Yeah. But I, but see, I, but see, I love like playing with him because, because uh, you, as you asked about a duo, you know, Jagger, Richard, I mean, it, if you see the Beck show, I'm, I'm Beck's guy, you know, it, we're, we're up front doing our thing. And, um, and that feels really good. You know, that, again, it's something like, kind of like the, going back to the air thing where it doesn't feel like I'm just some sort of hired guy. The hired uh, gun. Yes. This is yeah, tricky. I, don't, I don't like the hired gun. Thing. 20 feet from like, the, 
I was going to say that there's a film, isn't there, 20 feet from the mic, you know, the one, what it's like to be the sidekick, you know, like Earl Slick, you know, David Bowie's kind of guitarist. There, yeah. was, a, there was a documentary film where it's all these people who had to know where they, they were in the scheme of things. They, they had to know that, you know, that's, that's the space for the lead singer or the, the artist. You have to just go to the side. So that is a bit of a different gig, isn't it? Well, see, that's the thing. That's what I that's what I'm always railing against, even if I am playing with somebody else. And I think that's what what Beck appreciates about me is I'm not like over there like, hey, is this OK? Like, hey, is this OK? What I'm doing? Like, hey, uh, don't want to step on your toes. Like, I'm like uh, jumping in front of him, like like hamming it up and stuff. And he, he loves that. Um, and again, there's not many situations that would tolerate that from me. Yes, <laughs> but but those, that's the only kind of quote unquote situation where I'm not the focal point that's that's acceptable for me because I'm still allowed to kind of shine and do my thing, and and he encourages it. He's not like, hey man, you, can you chill, can you tone it down a little bit? You know, like never. Um, so again, I've kind of like found a, a unique little little niche. Yes. Even doing even doing things with other people where they they want me to be myself. And it, well, I remember earlier, you know, the, the you know, the other day, you mentioned about sort of working with was it Jesus and the Mary Chain? So you had that amazing connection with those guys. Well, I was working with Primal Scream, but I had been in a band that opened up for the Jesus and Mary Chain. Oh, in, right, that's in in eighty five, which was quite extraordinary. So it was Primal Scream you worked. Yes, I, I played bass on two of their records. I, I, sadly, I, I don't know the names of those records. I think one of them is, um, oh, it's like a play on a word, but they do that a lot. Um, psycho something. It's uh, psychosmosis. Right. So what it's period? So what period was this with the Primal Scream guys? This would have been about. Um, I remember when that was. Um, this could have, this is about maybe 10 years ago. Right. Okay. It's kind, I think it's kind of right when Monty went back to the Stone Roses. Okay. And you filled in. I filled in, but I didn't play live shows. I just did the two records and then they got that fantastic girl who plays with them. Right. I got you. And what was it yeah. like playing with sort of, you know, Primal Scream? Was that quite amazing to sort of... Oh man. Well, I, I'm like a Bobby Gillespie fanatic. I just think he's the coolest dude on the planet. So... You know, I mean, it's just, it's Bobby Gillespie. I mean, come on. <laughs> um, and uh, so, yeah, that was that was a real thrill. Again, that was my friend David Holmes producing, um, and uh, we did that out here. Uh, we did the first one I worked with them on out here in LA, and then the second one I did it at their um, now over studio. I guess they lost their studio space, um, but that was and that would have been about five years ago. The second one, right. I, um, but yeah, no, it's 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 a thrill. I mean, Ennis is a is a lovely character, and Bobby is just Bobby, and and uh, you know, they basically everything I was doing, they're just like, oh yeah, you know. So it wasn't like it, there wasn't like a a time like a period where I had to kind of like prove myself, or you know, like where I had to kind of get to know what they're doing because I understand what they're doing immediately. Yes, and you was know, that and did, and did that connection come about because of working with David Holmes? Was that his? yes. That was the one. He said, look, you need Jason. Yes. He, he also brought me in on the Noel Gallagher High Flying Birds record. I'm playing all the bass on that. Um, 
and um, I'm doing something with uh, for Sinead O'Connor right now, virtually. Blimey, Sinead. Sinead. <laughs> I, I've, only, I've only heard one track, but it's great. Jesus Christ, Sinead O'Connor. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of like Zelig. Like, there's... <laughs> There's a lot of uh, things that you don't know that I'm on that, like, if you look at the notes, uh, that, that's the problem with all the streaming stuff. There's no notes. Right. Because cause I kind of see these tweets from her and messages and she sounds like, oh, God, I can't get out. I've got no food. Can someone get some food? I'm not going to starve to death. I mean, uh, I didn't realize. Oh, yikes. That... <laughs> yikes. <laughs> Scary. It sounded very scary. This was only quite recently. So, what's it like working with someone who obviously has had that kind of amazing career in the 80s and then dealing with huge fame and all the kind of stuff that she's often talked about? Well, I've never met her. So, this is all just David just sends me tracks and I work on him on him here. Right. Okay, then. Yeah. And is that, and, and was that the same with, was that the same with Noel Gallagher as well? Yes, exactly. They would send me something. I would get it. They would send me something like end of the day for them. So I would get it noon, you know, whatever, 2 p.m. for me. Right. They would go to bed. I would I would record it, send it to them. They would wake up to my bass track. And they would say fantastic stuff. And yes. I, I, I think one time I got like a very slight note from from David. Everything else was like Noel is like jumping up and down the studio right now. So yes, and and I remember he was interviewed by dear old Elton John for his show on Apple Radio, and he absolutely loved that album. You know, it was a, it was almost like you know Noel Gallagher. You know, he's back on form, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, I like that record too. It's it's, it's yeah, it's got it's got some really great moments. So this is this is where you all sort of the the occasional rent money gets paid, isn't it? Yeah, occasionally. I mean, it's, you know, it's not, you'd be, you'd be uh, astonished at the amount of money I pay for rent. So <laughs> it, it, all I can, all I can say is it helps, but. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't quite cover it. The, nothing covers it except touring. Yes. Which I can't, which I probably can't do for another, whatever, nine months or a year. Probably. So. Yeah, this is cool. So look, what would you say to an 18 year old, you know, if you could have said something to an 18 year old self starting out? And you've got all this, you know, decades of, you know, wisdom and experience and the ups and downs. Is there something that you would have thought, God, I would have just told them this? Well, I, yeah, I mean, certainly just not to get, uh, like, to, to sort of never let uh, external forces um, affect your, you know, your, your trajectory. Um, that, that's, that's really the only regret I have. And it's not a regret that keeps me up at night or anything like that. But it's definitely... I def it's definitely like a head scratcher. It's like, wow, all this time has elapsed and I've really only made five solo records and the solo records are the only thing like in a, in a, in a pie chart, my happiness is solo record. And then like a, a, like a little tiny piece of playing with other people. Yes. You know, and, and maybe another tiny piece producing but only producing things that I really like. Like I know a lot of producers and they have to take on things they like and they have to take on things they don't like to pay the bills. Yeah. And man, I've been lucky as, as a, as a producer, but I wouldn't even call it lucky. It's more just, I'm stubborn and I, and I'm not going to do something that I don't like. So, but I've produced a ton of stuff that I'm really proud of. I mean, that Daniel Johnston record was, you know, um, 
was one that was just, I, I still listen to that and I'm like, I can't believe that I made this record and to know that it was his favorite record of his, the one that I made. Um, you know, that, that means a lot to me. Which album's that? It's called Is and Always Was. Oh. I produced and played every instrument on that, except I had my friend play like a, like a couple of things on one song, but I played every single thing and produced, and produced and mixed that in my, in my little house. Which is pretty amazing. It's, it's just, and that's another thing, for, like, so I guess a lot, a lot of my attention and focus has gone to, to that because I really do enjoy, like, like I understand that if, if there's a budget, um, you, can, you can record anywhere now, but if you mix it in a proper studio, you can get it to kind of sound the way you probably want it. You can certainly get it to sound what we used to call competitive. Right. Meaning, meaning it doesn't sound like some flimsy little tiny thing next to this other record. Um, but having said that, one of my biggest thrills in this life is recording, mixing something in my little room, having it go out into the world, do whatever it's going to do commercially, and then when it does well and it has radio play and all that stuff, can you imagine the satisfaction where I know it's sitting right next to records that, that cost, you know, $200,000 and I mix it here on my little rig and it's and standing with them. Um, that, that is like a huge joy for me. Well, absolutely. It's like, a, it's like a weird kind of like, it's like my studio is like an old biplane and it's just barely cutting the wind and all these Learjets are flying by, but people are noticing my biplane as well. You know, it makes me, <laughs> it makes me like really thrilled. Yeah. In fact, I, I had a number one record in Belgium, but still, I'll take it. Absolutely. Um, it was a number one record, and in fact, the the single from it was the most played song on the radio in Belgium for that entire year. More more plays than Beyonce. More plays than Radiohead. My 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 single from with this guy Ben Ben Loy, who's a ph phenomenal um, solo artist. Um, and we've done, we've done three records together, and those records are some of my proudest moments. Because, that, again, that's a duo. Yeah, yeah. It looks like it's one guy. But if you read the notes, all instruments by Bent and Jason, produced by Jason, engineered by Jason, mixed by Jason. So it's, it's, a, real, it's a real duo just with, with, as, under the guise of a solo album. That's amazing, isn't it? That is just amazing. Yeah, yeah it's really fun. And there's also, I don't know if I mentioned, there's another guy that you should check out. Uh, did I mention on Soldat? No. So this guy, do you remember a band called Daryl Ann from Amsterdam? No. Daryl Ann. Daryl were, were were quite good. They were kind of like a they were kind of like a Dutch uh, pavement or something. No, the only They're, band is the only band I know from Holland is the X, really. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, this was the guitar player, and he we've done two two solo records of his together. Um, one is called In Another Life, and the other one is just called Soldat. It's S-O-L-D-A-A-T. And his name is Anna. It's A-N-N-E, like Annie, or like Anne, but it's uh, Anna. Yeah. And those records, I mean, he's got this really kind of strange, almost like Neil Young, kind of high Neil Young voice. But again, those are he and I playing everything. And th those records are me playing almost every, almost all the instruments. He's playing some guitar and some bass, but for the most part, it's it's me playing and kind of like just doing what I would do to my stuff, but with his songs. 
that's just wild. That is just yeah, wild. It's, it's really fun. And again, it's like a, a, another thing where I found kind of like a niche where I don't have to um, just be a, tr- a traditional producer, which is, you know, a much less hands-on job custom, customarily. Um, I'm able to uh, basically kind of impose my will. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the only reason I'm doing that is because I, these people are already fans, you see. So if, if, if you're working with a fan, it's kind of like the best scenario because and because I'm a fan too, you see, it's not, it's not just for me. It's like, I, again, I only take something on if I like it. So if I like it, I'm a fan of yours. And now I'm going to do everything in my power to make this the coolest record that we can do. So that's amazing. So look, just yeah. briefly then. So hopefully next year you might get some live dates and another solo album out on the streets. There will absolutely be at least one solo album next year because all this, all this, uh, stay at home, stuff is going to result in me probably emerging with, you know, 30 songs. Yes. So, so it's going to, and recorded and mixed. So, um, yeah, there's going to be at least one record, uh, and, um, definitely some solo stuff, some solo touring, um, as soon as I can. It's got to be done, hasn't it? It's got to be done. I think it's got to be done. It has to be done. Look, well, Jason, <laughs> thank you ever so much. It's been amazing. And, uh, yes, I'll, I'll send oh, you a pleasure. Yeah. It's been amazing. Well, um, did your golf go well, by the way, the other day? No, uh, not so much. Fair enough. No. Don't bother yeah. with the golf, actually. And did you say you're playing with some other guys later? Uh, no, I'm just getting together with the with all the original Beck band guys. We're all still friends, like the like. Uh, well, obviously Beck, but um, the original bass player that had the afro that's really like a total character. That guy, um, the original drummer, um, and then uh, myself, and we all just we're going to get together and actually we're going to watch the trip. The the original one from the sixties. No, no, the the latest, the Grease one. I think oh, that's the latest one. right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, nice. we, we all we we all. I mean that that I think it's the first one that has the scene where they're sipping the wine and they're doing the, come come, Mister Bond, do you enjoy killing as much as I do? <laughs> that, that scene absolutely destroyed all of us. We were like on the floor of the bus watching that. Excellent. Back, the back truth. So, yeah. Anyway, look. Have a great day and think. Take yeah, care. Thank you so much. So nice to talk to you. See you later. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye. Take care. Bye bye. And that is how you say goodbye in a very confident way, or not. Anyway, look, that's the end of the interview. And a massive thank you to Jason Faulkner for giving me the time for that. Uh, this has been David Esau, the C86 Show. If you want to contact me for some random reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86 Show. Also, all these interviews have been archived. That is true. Find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, C86 Show. Anyway, I'm going to go. Have a great week. Stay safe.